Oh, okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, actually, we started in March. Yeah, we started in March. And then the COVID hit. And the COVID hit, and we kept going anyways. Praise God for that. Amen. I was just talking to somebody this last week, and they said, how, how are you guys doing with your church closed and all? I said, um, our church isn't closed. We, uh, we never really did close. And... Um, I thank God for that. If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast about God. And he just said, don't do it. And I says, all right. And if I boast, I boast in the Lord. It was his doing. And uh, I just followed suit. And I just thank God for that. And we've been able to, to maintain and, and stay uh, going strong. And uh, I thank God for a lot of the people that have joined us online, as well as some of those that have come by here as well. And we thank you. And uh, thank you for joining us this morning as well. Rick and Peggy, thank you for being here. And I just let everybody know you were here, so hope you don't get in trouble. <laughs> there they are. Uh, but uh, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah. We're going to go. We're going to take a little different direction this morning. As I mentioned, we finished Second Corinthians. We Second Second Corinthians had been a very in-depth chapter. We're going to do somewhat in-depth with Isaiah chapter seven as well. And uh, really, I'm going to be reading out of verse not chapter nine more than anything else. But we'll start in seven, and then jump jump over to chapter nine. Chapter 9 is the chapter that is called, at least, uh, bless you, at least in, the, in my Bible, it is called, For to us a child is born, right at the top. And, and uh, if you know anything about Christmas, this is a verse that is quoted often and is given to us in, in so many different ways. And uh, it's even put on, on postcards, it's put on Christmas cards, you'll see it on almost every religious uh, venue that you can see. People have taken uh, Christmas and have really commercialized it. And it is a booming business. I don't know about you, but uh, I, I was starting to see things about Christmas a couple of months ago. People are buying up lights, trees, they're buying presents, wrapping, all kinds of things. It's like Christmas is the biggest marketing time of the year, season of the year. And in the, in the hustle and bustle, the lights and the glitter and the trees and the presents and everything else, it seems that Christmas has lost its original meaning. And we try as often as we can as parents, as grandparents, and we try as, as church members and as pastors to really emphasize the fact that it's about the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting, though, because though we have been given the command to remember me, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he was talking about his death. He wasn't talking about his birth. As a matter of fact, to remember one's birth was considered to be somewhat uh, paganistic, you know, in, in a sense. There are, there are only two births that are mentioned uh, in, in the Bible, one in the Old Testament. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh had uh, a birthday and they recognized his day of birth. And then also in the, in the New Testament, that was in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, we know that Herod had a birthday, and that's when John the Baptist's head was beheaded. And both these kings, both these rulers, were pagan, ungodly men. And those are the only two birthdays that are remembered in the Bible. If you take that a little bit further, you'll remember that the births are were remembered for a very specific reason. And the reason being is the reason that people in ancient days would remember birthdays because, first of all, if you, if you can tell when you were born, then you can know where the stars were. And by your own horoscope, you can somewhat foresee your own future and see the things that uh, are going out, uh, are going to happen for you according to the stars and, and according to the month and the date that you were born in. And we call that today our horoscope. 
And so you would have certain attributes given to you because of your horoscope or the month and the day that you were born. The second reason that the birthdays were important is because on your birth date, you were allowed, according to tradition back then, uh, one wish from the spiritual realm. All you had to do was light a candle, give your wish, and, and ask the gods to grant you that one wish. You would keep it to yourself and you would blow out the candle, kind of somewhat of our tradition that we have today. And, and so those two things were very paganistic. And to some extent, there's been a push in, at the beginning. There was a push to not celebrate or even think about the birth of Jesus Christ. And as most of you probably know, that Christmas is December 25th, which is what we call Christmas, is not actually his birth. We don't have a birth certificate. We don't even have a record of his birth. However, it was combined with the winter solstice celebration and the birth of Christ in this time. And, and, and so we have now Christmas, very commercialized. However, as Christians, what we do and what we try to do is take advantage of this paganistic holiday, really, and proclaim the Christ. And we take it because people are focused upon God's Word. They're focused upon the cross or they're focused upon the Christ and, and they're not even knowing it. The problem is that most people, most men, want to keep the Christ in the manger. That's where they want to keep Him. They want to keep Him at the place where they found Him. And if they even think about Him again, they want to keep Him on the cross during, Christmas, during Easter or the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, and so there's, there's this type of strain in our, in, in our theology and in our thinking. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we, how do we put this into practice as Christians, as believers? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is go back to the intent of what God was trying to say in Isaiah chapter 7 and chapter 9. And in Isaiah chapter 7, if you, if you start there with me, uh, you'll see here that in Isaiah chapter 7, it says, verse 1, In the days of Ahas, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. This is key, this is important to understanding what God was trying to do and what He was referring to at this time. And I'd like for us to, first of all, go to the Lord in prayer and ask God to lead us in what we're going to go over today. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you once again for your constant provision and protection for how you've watched over us and kept us, kept us close to you, Lord. We thank you for this time of the year that we can celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But most importantly, that helps us to focus and to bring in the focus what it is that you're doing and what you've done so far. So we pray, Lord, that you help us at this time, not only to remember our Lord and Savior, the King of glory that came in this first advent, but also to look forward to the second advent, the second Christmas, Christmas part two, when you will return bearing gifts, creating a new society, a new, a new place. So, Father, help us to look back and to see what was going on at that time as we can look forward to the day when you will return. Thank you, Father, for your word and how you preserved it. Help us to glean from this portion of Scripture the importance of it for our life, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. 
As you probably know, in Isaiah chapter 6, the verse, the chapter right before chapter 7, Isaiah had this vision of God in the temple. In chapter 6, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died. When King Uzziah died, his son Ahaz became uh, the next ruler. In Judah, he was the one that was bringing the people together, and Ahaz was a very wicked king. If you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16, if you just back up a little bit, I want to show you something about King Ahaz and who he was and what he was doing. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, you back up a little bit with me, you'll see that in the first few verses, we get to see a little bit about this, this king, this man's temperament and who he was. And in chapter six, in chapter 16 of 2 Samuel, verse 1, it says, When David had passed a little beyond the summit. Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I think I, I passed up a little bit here. Um, I think it's... Where did I go here? Oh, I'm sorry. It's not, it's not 2 Samuel. It's 2 Kings. 2 Kings 16. We need to take a look at this. Here it is. Ahaz reigns in Judah. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, this is the portion that Isaiah is talking about. He's talking about this time of the, uh, of the kingdom of Ahaz, uh, of, of Judah. And, and verse 2 says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nation, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What Ahaz had done at a very young age, he was influenced by the gods and by the peoples of that place and that time. There was a, there was this practice that what kings would do, what people would do in order to try to get the gods to appease them and, and possibly give them the, 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 the ability to bless them in such a way that if you really truly wanted to be blessed and really wanted to be helped by your gods, what you would do is you would sacrifice your children. Now, the sacrificing of children was a practice that was done and it was brought in from, well, the Moabites and the Ammonites. The Moabites and the Ammonites, if you don't know, came from the lineage of Lot. Lot's daughters had seduced Lot and they became, they had children. And these children that grew up, grew up to be very ungodly people. They were absorbed into the Arab nation. And in the Moabites and the Ammonites religion and thought, they had these two gods, Molech, which was one, and the other god was Shamash. And Shamash and Molech were gods that they would appease by burning their children. There's a, a battle that took place in, in, in Carthage, uh, Carthage, which is of North Africa. And this battle that was taking place, the people there were worshiping the god of Molech. And they said, you know what we have to do is we have to appease the gods and ask the gods to give us favor in this battle. And so what the Carthage people did is they went out and they gathered hundreds of children. But because the people didn't want to sacrifice their own children, what they ended up doing was purchasing children from the poor people to sacrifice hundreds of these kids. And they sacrificed to their God all these children. When they come to find out that they realize, you know, we didn't fool the gods whatsoever, they in turn went ahead and started to sacrifice their own children. And they had these places that they would call these Tophets. And these Tophets were just areas of, of coming to and, and praising and worshiping. And they would bring their children on these altars. And, and sometimes they would have these, these bulls that were hollow inside 
outside and they would burn from the inside, throw the kids inside of this pot where they would have these gods with their arms extended out and they would roll the children down these arms and into the fires. And you can hear the screaming and the crying of the children and they were drowned out by the drums and the yelling and the screaming of people praising their gods. And and this was the practice that they did. Many of the kings of Israel followed in those practices. They married these women. Solomon had a wife that was an Ammonite, and she too practiced, and he built for her a temple that he would, uh, that she would go out and worship. Now, we don't know if he had any children that were sacrificed, but that was the practice of the day. And they would do these types of things, and Ahaz was one of these kings, and Isaiah is saying, look, here's what you need to do. You need to stop doing that. As a matter of fact, in the days of Ahaz, as I mentioned here, in chapter 7 of Isaiah, that the, the kings of Judah, uh, excuse me, the kings of Syria, they got together with Ephraim and they came up against, uh, they came up against Judah. And so he says, what do we do? What, what do we start doing? And, and Isaiah says to him, what you need to do is you need to stop your practices and trust God. Trust God for what it is that he's going to do. And, and, and I know that in today's culture, we have this really hard, it's difficult sometimes to trust totally in God's word. We know what God's word says. We know what God is telling us to do. We know what it is that we should do. But but when it comes down to it, I, you know, I can go to church. I can read my Bible. I can even give, you know, but when it comes to the point of actually where the rubber meets the road, when it affects me, it becomes a little bit difficult. It becomes a little difficult to trust God. This morning, it was very interesting because I came and our gate was open and I thought, okay, that's kind of strange. And I drove back here and I realized that, you know, we have our AT&T tower back there. So there was a gentleman back there that he was working on. And I says, okay, good. Let me ask you, you know, when you go out, you can just leave the gate open and I'll, I'll shut it later on because we have church. And he says, you guys still have church? I says, yeah. He says, we need church now more than ever. More than ever, than, than ever before, we need to be open. We need to give people hope. And he goes, man, I need some hope. He says, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. I go to church and our church is open and I don't get to go that often. But, you know, I really need hope. Man, I was so stressed out because of what's going on with our governor, with our president, with everything else that's going on. And I says, this is why we need hope. Jesus Christ is with us, Emmanuel. And he says, you know, I, I needed to hear that. Nothing that happens in this world, nothing that happens in this world is out of his control. Everything that is taking place right now is in God's control. And I've got to rest. When you rest in that, I rest in that. When you rest in that, everything will just make sense. It may, you may not understand it, but you'll realize in the end, Jesus Christ is going to come again. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And this is the kingdom that Isaiah is talking about. He tells Ahaz, just trust in God. And Ahaz says, no, I'm going to do my own thing. Now, I don't know if it was at this time when these kings were coming up to him that he sacrificed his own child. We don't know that. We know that he did it uh, back according to Second Kings. And, and But this was the practice. And this was the time in the day. Sexual immorality was rampant. It was uh, worshiping all kinds of different gods. And, and these were kings of Israel. These were the leaders of God's people that God instituted and brought into his kingdom. And God brought these men in there to be able to lead these men, their, their, their families and, and the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And, and they were all going after their own appetite. It seemed that power had influenced them to the point of, you know, I do what I want. I, I, I'm more... I'm more, I'm better off if I just do it on my own. And what Ahaz did is instead of going up against uh, or using God and, and going up against 
the, the nations that were up against him and trusting in God, what he did is he built alliances with other countries. And, we've, and he figured, here is what I'll do. I'll, I'll just build alliances and I'll become stronger, more powerful, and I'll be able to, to do what it is that I need to do. And so thinking of Israel, the greatest nation, the greatest, the greatest nation that ever, that ever existed when David had solely focused on God, became, well, separated, became divided. This nation eventually was captured was captured, was captivated by the outs, countries and, and nations around him. And what, what, what ended up taking place, well, all these people were taken as prisoners. And Jerusalem was left desolate. The temple was destroyed. The walls was, were torn down. And all of this was happening during this time. And Isaiah is prophesying. Isaiah is preaching to a people. Isaiah is, is talking to the kings and the rulers. And he's telling them, trust in God somewhat similar to our situation today, where we are talking to people to trust in God. Well, I trust God, but I think this president will be better. I trust God, but I think these laws will be good. I trust God, but, you know, I want to add more to it. Now, I'm not speaking or preaching against the type of president you've chosen or the rulers and governors that you've picked and and those that you've decided to, to go with. That's on you. It's okay. All I'm saying is that each one of us have to trust in God. Well, I trust in God, but but this is not the way I trusted God to do this. I wanted Him to do my bidding. There are a lot of people that are upset. You know, and to be honest with you, I've become a little upset and somewhat uh, upset at the whole process that has taken place. The whole process that's happening because of the allegations and everything else that's taking place within our own country. But when you stop and think and say, okay, it's not about what the governments do. It's about what God is doing. And why is God doing that? In in, in the time of Isaiah, it was a dark, it was a dark place. People were being sacrificed, sexual immorality, all kinds of stuff going on. And we stop and think, I says, well, what's the number one reason that people want to change the government? What's the one thing that are people, maybe it's not just the number one, one of the biggest factors is the sacrifice of children. You might think, well, we don't do that. Well, yes, we do. I, we, we, we call that, uh, well, of course, we soften the blow. We don't call it the sacrifice of children or the sacrifice of children to Molech. What we call it is, well, abortion. As of November 25th of this year, in the United States, on that day, there were 929 abortions done on a single day. In the U.S. since 1973, Roe v. Wade, there were over 72 million abortions done. And a lot of these abortions, they're, they're, one of the reasons why people say that we have to do abortions is because of, well, you know, rape and, and uh, incest and those things that happen. you, you got to give these women a choice. And out of the 776,000 abortions that were done this year alone up to November 25th, 37,000 of those uh, were done with the 16-week gestation period. In other words, three months. And now in New York and other states, you can actually do it right up to the time of birth. You can actually abort a child. But out of all those all those abortions in, in the, the 760,000, let's say just let's just say 800,000, about 8,000 of them were actually because of rape and incest. In essence, the other sub, what 720,000 people that are left over that are getting aborted are because of choice. Because of the what it has done to me. 
The, the fact of the matter is, is, beloved, we have a nation that has gotten so dark. And right now it is spiraling downward in an immoral and just an ugly place, more and more so. Just these last 10 months have given us a picture of how bad and how ugly it's going to get. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so we start thinking about the background of the first advent, which gives us a picture of the second advent. And when you go to chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 9 of of Isaiah, in chapter 9 of Isaiah, God tells Isaiah to write this down. He says, but there will be, there will be no gloom for her who, who in anguish. Let me read that again. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joys at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burdens and the staff of his shoulders and the rod of his oppressors you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trumpeting warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to, be, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What Isaiah was talking about was talking about a time to come. He was talking about a place that was going, that this was going to happen. He was talking about an individual, uh, somebody that was going to come in and set things straight in this dark, ugly world. There's going to be a light. Beloved, that light is Jesus Christ. It's the light that you carry in your heart. It's the light that it was given to you out of the darkness that you were pulled out of, given a light to shine upon this world, upon your life, upon your family, upon your uh, workplace, a place of employment, upon your community, upon all things that have happened, that are continue to happen. And I have found that the, the most happiest and, and, and the most blessed people, the most content people I have found in these last 10 months are those that are plugged into a church somewhere. And there are many people that are looking for and asking. And, and, and the people that I talked to, like the gentleman that I talked to this morning, like another phone call that I had just yesterday, a couple of days ago. I know a few weeks ago, I asked you to pray for my aunt that she was in the hospital with COVID and other complications. Well, she passed away. And prior to that, her sister passed away the day before that, my other aunt. And so we have two family members right now that are, it's just, they're both sisters. They're sisters of my dad. And, and, you know, the family is kind of torn up right now. And I come in with this light. Look, God is still in control. God is still in control. Now, they have various other beliefs and other things going on in the, behind the scenes. But they've asked me to come and officiate. And I says, I will do that. But I'm going to bring the light. I'm going to bring a torch. I'm going to bring this flamethrower to show you that this is the light that you need to focus on, is Jesus Christ. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, we have many people that are in darkness, and they need to hear about Jesus Christ. 
Well, people know about Christmas, of course. We just talked about that. Wasn't he born on Christmas Day? Well, of course he wasn't. As a matter of fact, most people even know that. Most people even know that he wasn't really born on Christmas. Well, you know, but we celebrate his birth. Yeah, but we really shouldn't have to celebrate it. What we need to celebrate and we need to remember is his death. Well, I go to church every once in a while. Well, well, that's great. I believe that there is a world out there that knows about Jesus Christ. They know God. As a matter of fact, the Bible even tells us that the devils and the demons, they know God. They know God in such a way that they know him better than you do. They know God probably more theologically sound than anybody else. I've said this before. When Jesus Christ crossed the, across the sea and he came to the, to the site where there was this man that was demon-possessed, Jesus Christ didn't even have to announce himself. Nobody had to tell him that Jesus, the Son of God, was there. But he comes and he falls down on his face and he tells Jesus, What have you to do with us, O Son of the Most High? His Christology was correct. He knew who Jesus Christ was. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? His eschatology was correct. He knew about the end times. He knew not only that Jesus Christ was God, but he also knew that there was an appointed time for suffering. And he also knew his power. Don't cast us there yet, but cast us into this herd of swine. And they knew everything about God. They knew everything about who Jesus Christ was. Many people within our churches today, many people within our country today, many people around the world know God in such capacity. But they don't know God. They've not surrendered to His grace. They've not surrendered to to what God is desired for them. They're incapable of seeing. They're incapable of opening their heart. They're incapable because of repentance. It's not raising your hand. It's about repentance. It's not about making a prayer. It's about repentance. After Peter finished praying, or praying and, and after he finished preaching and the people were cut to a heart, the people screamed out, what shall we do? Tell us, what shall we do? Peter says, you murdered the Christ. You murdered the Son of God. You, put him to de- you handed him over to our leaders and they killed him and, and they tortured him. And they were cut to the heart because they knew that sin had so overwhelmingly taken part in their life. And they said, what shall we do? Well, Peter didn't say, well, I want you to bow your heads and raise your hands. Okay, One one by one, I see your head. He didn't say that. He said, repent. Repent and be baptized. Change your life. We talked about repentance here a few Sundays ago. He said, repent. Get away from what you're doing and start doing what God wants you to do. Look at the Word of God and follow it. Obey it. Last week I said that disobedience is just like idolatry. Disobedience is, you know, God says, I, why, why, I'm not interested in your sacrifices of bulls and lambs and all the finances. What, what I desire is a broken and contrite heart. That is the object of worship, to worship God. Not to do what you want to do, but to appease God by what you have. But God says obedience is far more worthy than sacrifice. I desire obedience, God says. Because when we don't obey, what we've done is we've made ourselves the God. And God says, don't have any other gods before you. That's what God said. And he said, whenever you put anything, whether it's your job, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your family, when you put anything above God, you've made that object an idol. 
And that's a very dangerous place to put your loved one in. And we step back and we say, okay, Lord, I want to, I, I, I desire to obey. Give me the strength. Give me the power. Help me to overcome this temptation. And in this time that Ahaz was running his own game, in this time, Isaiah prophesies there's going to be this power. There's going to be this, this you have it now. But let me show you how all this works out, he says. Let me show you what it is that I'm going to do. I didn't get an outline. That's okay. I have one right here. Because Ahaz was given this in verse, in verse um, well, the chapters that we just came through. He says, For unto us a child is born, to give us a son is given. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. In your outlines, number one, he is an ever-present God, always with us. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. As the song that we sang, God with us. As a matter of fact, when he wanted to express and to show uh, his favor upon mankind, what he had done, I got it here, brother. Thank you. And he came and, and he, uh, thank you anyways, brother. In, uh, in, in Luke chapter 1, when he found favor with Mary, he says, And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Because Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God himself is with you. And Emmanuel, he was with Mary. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, and we find that also in Luke, he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. One thing we need to point out there is that he says he will save his people. And we know that not all people are his people. Otherwise, all people would be saved. So there's the distinction there that Matthew makes. His people. Who are his people? Very important to look at and to see. We'll touch on that some other time when we're going through Galatians. But see, he is, he is the ever-present God, always there. And people see and, and they sense and they get his common grace. And everyone, even the wicked, all the world gets His common grace. They get His common grace through the sunshine, through the rain, through the air that we breathe, the provisions that we have. God bestows His common grace on everyone. But there's a special grace. There's a saving grace that is that is just set aside for those that are His. Those that are His. Those that recognize and repent and are following God's Word. Not just everyone that believes. Because we just established that. Even the demons believed. Number two, he is the perfect Savior. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, in verse 6. And, and he is the Prince of Peace, who though he was in the form of God, he, he, Jesus Christ himself was the form of God. He was God. He is God. And he humbled himself, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, he, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. You think about this. God himself took the place and took the part of a servant and became human, became man. He had to to experience what we experience, to know what we know. And he became a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Emmanuel, 
God with us. This is how God is with us. Jesus Christ came in the form of you and I, of sinful men. He came in the flesh, yet he did not sin. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 4, it tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ understands. He recognizes. He's felt and he's been tempted and he's experienced the pain, the suffering that you have experienced. He wept when his best friend died. He bled. He was tired. He was hungry. He was tempted in all ways but did not sin is what Hebrews continues to tell us. He's the ever-present God in Emmanuel. He is the perfect Savior because He became man, just like us, experiencing everything that we experience. Back in your outline, He's the wonderful counselor. I think one, one of the best things that we can have is a counselor that is wonderful. Those two words go great together. Wonderful counselor. When I first started as a pastor, one of the things I wanted to be was a counselor. I desired to want to help people. You know, I took some psychology classes at college and you know, read a lot of books. And <clears throat> I was kind of somewhat of a psychologist and kind of fashioned my messages in, in such a way to help people psychologically get through things and go through things and, and help things. As a matter of fact, I remember one guy coming up to me after the service when we were in Riverside. He says to me, that's our pastor, our psychologist. You know, and he was really impressed. I felt really good about that. But, but see, psychology is not is not biblical. It's the counseling part that's biblical, but not the psychological part. See, psychology, what it does, it tries to understand the thinking and the thought process of man. It's understanding his psyche, is understanding is who he is. And, and, and psychology has, one of the things I found out about psychology, it, it just, it varies. One, one psychologist will tell you one thing, while another psychologist will tell you a different thing. And it all depends on the person that has given you the counsel. And a lot of times you'll find people that will give you the counsel that is in agreement with you. And you'll find that person eventually you ask enough people. And, and so when I first came as, as a pastor, and I, I wanted to be a little bit of a counselor, and, and so I would share with people, you know, what you need is behavior modification. Behavior modification is just taking the, stop doing the things that you're doing here and, and modify that behavior by start doing something else, replace it. I come to find out that the same thing is called discipleship. Discipleship, just get into God's Word, read what it says, and do it. And, and I would try to understand, okay, so tell me about your background. Let me know what, how you grew up. Were you the oldest? The, were you the youngest? Were you the middle child? And so I would try to understand people in that sense as well. You know, male, females, different temperaments. I had a book that I would have people read that it was uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And, and, you know, I don't know if you remember that. I forget who the author was, but I would have them read that book. See, you got to understand that, that men are different than women. Well, duh. Yeah, they are different. And, and I would have them read that and we'd go over it. And, and I'd felt good because, okay, they understood You know, there, was, there were differences. There was another book that I used to recommend. I, you know, I had a lot of books. Her needs, his needs type of thing. But uh, Smallings and all, and all these Christian writers, some of them were, some of them weren't. But they all made sense. And, and, and so when we started through, going through this change, I, I started to think, you know, I'm not a counselor. I'm a theologian. That's what I turned, I, that's what I was, didn't even realize it, but that's what I was becoming. 
Because the more I realize, this is what God's word says. See, see, you want a counselor? You want a wonderful counselor? He's right here. There, there he is. Right here. And, and if you want to hear the word of God, just open it up. And it'll show you. It'll tell you what it is that you have to do. God will show you what it is that he wants and desires from you. He's the wonderful counselor. He is the one that is willing to walk with you and talk with you and, and express everything that you need to know right here. Everything you need to know in life is right here. Anything outside of this is just mere speculation. It's human wisdom. And I've said this before. If it agrees with Scripture, then I don't need it. And if it disagrees with, with Scripture, I don't want it. Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor. So people would come up to me and they would say, can you, can you counsel me? I said, well, I'm not a counselor anymore. You're not? No, I'm a theologian. I can tell you what the Bible says. All right, and that every time I do that. People say, okay, well, what does the Bible say about this? Well, here's what the Bible says. Well, yeah, I'm going to pray about it. You're going to pray about what God said already to do? How, can you, how does that even make sense? To be honest with you, many people don't even follow that advice. And you will find advice that lines up with yours if you search far enough. There are people out there that will agree with everything that you say and disagree with what the Bible says. And as long as it lines up with your thought process and your understanding, people say, well, that must be true. I've got another person that agrees to what I'm thinking. A wonderful counselor. As a matter of fact, Jesus even promised this. Look at this verse with me. And this is out of the NIV. He says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. You love Jesus? Anybody else? <laughs> Do you love Jesus? Sorry, I didn't mean to wake you guys up. <laughs> How about you guys out there? You guys love Jesus? Hi, Sylvia. I know you're watching. <laughs> and uh, Lucy, everybody else. Do you love Jesus? I'm waiting for Sylvia to say amen. Yeah. Of course I do. Let me ask you another question. Do you love the Jesus of the Bible perfectly at all times with your whole heart? I can tell you I can't. Do you desire to love the Jesus of the Bible perfectly with your whole heart at all times? That's my desire. There's times that for whatever reason, and they're not bad reasons. There's times that, you know, I, I really want to love the God of the Bible, the Jesus of the Bible with all that I have, but my attentions are, are kind of swayed sometimes by, you know, my grandkids. Oh, you know, I mean, those guys, they have all my attention. I mean, and I, I will love on them. And, and though I, I am loving on them, it, it, it's, it's divided. As a matter of fact, Paul said that, you know, I would rather you were not married because then you're divide, your, your emotions and your love is divided. I would rather you be single like me, put all your attention on God. But those of you that are married, you're going to have some divided attentions. That's just what's going to happen. And we end up making gods and idols of our loved ones. And so it's not necessarily with bad things that I don't love Jesus Christ. And this is why, you know, I'd say... I, I want to, I desire to love the God of the Bible. And Jesus asked, if you love me, and if you desire to love me, you will obey what I command. And so every morning, every day, I get up, read his word, look at what the word is, and I say, oh, this is what he's saying. And the, the more that I put it into practice, well, the easier it's gotten. There are times that I fought against it. But look at what the rest of the word says. This is, again, out of the NIV. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor. The word there in uh, the, the ESV and in the um, King James Version is helper 
which is the same thing, helper, counselor, advisor. And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus promises. He will come to you. It's amazing on how a lot of people say, well, you know, I, I, I don't believe everything that the Bible was written in the Bible. You know, the Bible was written by man. Well, you believe the news, don't you? You believe your horoscope. You believe just about everything else that are written by man. How can you put more faith in that than in God's word? And what, what's happening here is, as Jesus said, the world cannot accept him. Not that they will not, but they cannot. Their hearts have been hardened. Their eyes have been glazed over. Their lives have been committed to this world. And they love the world, and the love of the Father is not in them. Because they love the world more than they love the light. They love being in darkness. It's a lot easier. Everybody seems to agree. Nobody's giving me any feedback. If I turn on the light in this dark world, people are going to get mad at me. I'm going to expose them, and they're really going to get mad at me. So therefore, many people would rather just live in the light. But he says this, but you know him. Beloved, you know him. You know him. You know him, but you know him for he lives within you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's a wonderful counselor, everlasting father. He's a mighty God. He's the perfect savior. He's the ever-present God. And then mighty God. Look at the next part. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Not only is he your counselor, but he's the mighty God to give you the ability to do what God has asked you to do. Ahaz is standing there and he's looking over this kingdom of his and he's looking at his enemies and he's watching his enemies just come together. And he says, you know, what I need to do is I need to join up with another group. I need to join up with these people. And Isaiah says, stop. Just trust in God. I do trust in God, but I'm just going to bring in some outside help. But those gods, those people are ungodly. Their God is not in accordance with Jehovah God. But Ahaz says, I will do what I will do. And he does. And we know that it didn't turn out right for him. 16 years, he was 36 years old, he was killed. You have a mighty God. Ahaz has a mighty God. This mighty God has been forever. And Jesus promised us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Mighty God. That's who he is. He's, he's, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Father for all generations. As the psalmist says, may his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. He is forever and ever and will continue to be God our Father. will never stop will never cease, will never unfather us. He won't divorce us. He won't cast us out. Never will he even think about aborting or leaving his children as orphans. Jesus promised that. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You have a father that cares. You have a father that is there. You have a father that is always there. He's an everlasting father. How long is everlasting? Can somebody tell me how far is that? That's a long time. (laughs) 
it's hard, it's hard to even quantify that. It's hard to even try to put a, a number behind that. It's everlasting. It's like forever. It's not like forever. It is forever. You cannot put a, a, a digit behind that. You cannot even start to begin to understand it because we are such finite human beings. We could be 100 years old, 120 years old, and, that's, and that still wouldn't begin to scratch the surface. Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father redeemer. From old is your name. There are a lot of people that have gone before us. A lot of presidents, even our president today, even our governors and our mayors and city council. You might be close to some of these people. You might have said hi, but they, hey, how you doing? You know, they, they might have forgotten your name. They might even know your name, but they do not know you as God knows you. As a matter of fact, all those politicians that have gone before us, none of them ever knew me. None of them ever knew you. It was interesting this morning as I was praying for this, this gentleman. That's the one thing I said, Lord, right now, I mean, he needed a word from you, and I'm praying. And, and just like you're concerned about him and I, two sinners that are uh, saved by grace, and, and we're just here out of nowhere, and, and, and you brought us together, and you're so concerned about, about us as your children, and we want to multiply that by an infinite number and recognize that you are even concerned about every single person on this planet. He counts the hairs on your head. Why he would do that, I don't know, <laughs> but he does. He knows every sparrow that falls. Once again, why does he do that? I don't know. It's just to express to you that God knows you. He knows everything. We watched this amazing video just recently of the, the way our solar system works. Our solar system is this star that is going through space at, at this phenomenal speed. And at the same time that our sun, our, our, our sun is flying out into wherever it's going. And wherever it's going right now, it's going to get there eventually, right at the end. And wherever it's going, and this video shows the planets as they are going around the sun. As they're revolving around the sun, and everything is rotating in itself. And it seems like this, this comet with this long tail, and all these little stars or planets, which, which are Earth, Mars, and all the other planets, you can just see the, 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 the tails of these little planets that are going through the, just this immense sky. The universe, it is just beyond my comprehension. It is, it is forever and ever. But I know, as the Bible teaches, that at one time it's going to come to, a, to an end. It'll come to a stop, right when God says, this is as far as you're going to go. He is our Father. Though the politicians don't know us, though our spiritual leaders don't know us, God knows us. None of these people know us. He's the Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the Hebrew, the word peace is not just the absence of war. For the Hebrew, it's not just, you know, that we're, we're done fighting. And the only way that most countries can get peace, or most people can get peace, is by some sort of exertion of power, of overtaking, of, of knocking down or killing as many people, ending the battle. There has to be a battle that has to be won in order for there to be peace, in most cases. And the battle that has been fought in the grave by Jesus Christ himself has been 
1. God has proclaimed to us peace. Peace, first and foremost, between us and God. We are no longer objects of wrath. At one time, you were this object of wrath, the Bible says. Paul tells us. And we were at enmity with God. We were enemies of God. And while we were enemies, still Christ died for us. And when that took place, that was taken care of. We have peace between God and us. We have peace between one another. We can sit down and if we just put the basics on the table, Jesus Christ died for you. And if you gave your sin, Jesus Christ died for me. He forgave my sin. Therefore, we should be able to forgive one another. There's got to be peace. I don't agree, and that's fine. You don't agree with me, and that's okay. But we can have peace. Can we? Unfortunately, in today's culture, that's not the case. Unfortunately, in today's world, nobody's at peace with anybody anymore. Unfortunately, for what's going on in this, in this, on this planet, that's, that's what they're trying to push. You know, let's have peace now, now that we've gotten our way. Let's all get together. But he is the prince of peace. Not only is he peace, but he is the ruler of it. And he, he distributes us as he wishes. And he is the one that, that gives peace out. He doles it out. And he says, you have peace. For the Hebrew person, peace was a completeness, a wholeness, a sound mind. When they would say shalom, when they say shalom, you would say back shalom. I, I I desire upon you this completeness, this wholeness, this, this togetherness that only comes from the peace of God. It's not just, you know, peace, no war, no fighting. It's more than just that for the Hebrew. And what Jesus is saying, what God is saying, he is, Jesus Christ is going to be the Prince of Peace. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Can you understand that peace? The peace that surpasses any understanding, any counseling, anything that you can come up with, that peace will surpass anything that anybody can give you. And so we pray for peace. We ask God to give us peace. We ask God to give us patience. We ask God to to provide for us this peace. And and we're going to be singing, peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners are reconciled. And that's what Jesus Christ came to do, is to bring that peace between us and them. Unfortunately, what the Bible says is uh, peace on earth. He doesn't say peace on earth. He tells the angels, the angels tell the shepherds, and peace upon those on whom his favor falls. Read that. Peace upon whom his favor falls. But we put it on our postcards, Christmas cards, out on our lawns. Peace on earth. We desire peace. Come on, everybody. Stop arguing. Stop fighting. Put your political differences aside. Let's have this peace on earth. Jesus himself said it better. He says, don't suppose that I've come to bring peace on earth. No, I've come to bring a sword. A sword between father and, and, and son and daughter and mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law and uh, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and all outlaws against outlaws. I mean, he just goes on and on. I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring division. Because the division that happens is between those who are his and those who are not. And so we sing this song, Peace on Earth and Mercy Mild. Well, th- that's a very good song to sing, but in essence... The Bible says, peace on whom his favor falls. We'll talk about that here in the next few weeks.
How do you gain His favor? How is it that you can receive His favor? How is it that I can receive this peace, this shalom, this completeness, wholeness? How is it that I can get this peace? Didn't Jesus Christ promise that to the world? Isn't that why He came? Well, if that's what He promised to the world, beloved, He broke His promise because there is no peace. I remember when I was taking some of my humanity classes, I come to find out out of all the 4,000 years of history, yeah, for 8,000 years, about well, the recorded history, all the 4,000 years of recorded history, there's only been 200 years added up together, more or less, of peace. Every other time there's been a war somewhere on the planet of recorded history. There is no peace, beloved. And there won't come peace until Jesus Christ is the peace of, is the, the, the Lord of your life. In Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility between political parties? No. Between me and my neighbor? No. Between me and my family? No. The hostility was between me and God. God's, and, and this is something that you probably won't hear too often, but there is this hostility against the enemies of God. And the enemies of God are those that aren't His. God hates sin. God is going to punish sin. And when Jesus Christ became my peace, He broke down that wall of hostility and He's made me one with God through Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself now sees me as justified. He sees me as holy. And I'm far from being holy or perfect or anything else. Justified? Yeah. I'm justified. I'm just if I'd never sinned. I'm reconciled. I'm born again. I have been given, I've I've become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. My responsibility because of that is to live my life in such a way that will honor Him, that will honor God. Do I do that perfectly? No, I don't. I desire to. Do I love Him perfectly every single day? No. I'm I'm a wretched sinner. I'm a vile sinner, saved by the grace of God. The difference between me and someone else is that I'm a vile sinner. We're all vile sinners. But the difference is I'm a wretched sinner, saved by the grace of God, and therefore it makes me a saved sinner. Those that are wretched sinners that aren't saved by the grace of God, they're called reprobates. Reprobates. And so there's a difference. When you become regenerated, born again, Jesus Christ resides within you through the Holy Spirit and gives you the power to be able to accomplish the task that Jesus Christ gave you to do. Jesus invaded this planet. When God came upon this earth in the incarnation, in the flesh, when Jesus Christ invaded this planet, He came to establish this kingdom of His that will never end. And that kingdom is being developed within us. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom needs a king. And wherever Jesus Christ is king, that's his kingdom. If he's king of your life, then the kingdom of heaven is within you. That's why we can say that he's not the king of this world. The kingdom, His kingdom has not been established on the planet. It's been established within us. He will come back for Christmas part two. And he will come back and he will establish his kingdom. 
And at that point, His kingdom will be on earth. And His will will be done as it is in heaven here on this earth. This is the whole purpose of this son, this child. It's interesting. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. A child is born. He's born. He is man, but a son is given. That's God, His divinity. The two in one. For unto us a child is born. And then God says, and I will give you my son. And these two shall become the one. And they three become one, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is how we can reconcile the incarnation of God, plus many other verses that we kind of went over this morning. He emptied himself, took on the, the, the servant attitude. He became flesh. He dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And he dwelt among us. The world did not know him. He was the light of the world. And he became flesh as the one and only God our Father. During this holiday that's coming up, during this Christmas holiday, help us to remember and help us to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the God and Father of all, all creation. And he desires to be loved and worshipped. That is our responsibility. And so we do so with as much fervor as possible, as best as we can, knowing that we're going to fail, but God gives you the power because He is mighty God to fulfill your part in what He's doing. Let me ask you to stand. Isaiah prophesied the coming of this child. The virgin shall give birth. He prophesied about this with the backdrop of this dark, wicked world where the kings, the leaders of that country, of his, his people, were sacrificing their own children. He sent his son during the same time just about as what we're experiencing today. And we have a dark background where we can be the light. Each one of us need to carry that light into this world. Father, we thank you once again for that reminder that Christmas as we celebrate with our family, that we celebrate it with the understanding that you are the light of the world. It's not about me. It's not about the tree. It's about you, Lord. We come here with full knowledge and understanding that this is not the actual birth of Jesus Christ. But we celebrate this season because it gives us an opportunity to proclaim who you are. So, Father, we thank you for that. I pray that we leave this place, understanding that you are our mighty God. You are the perfect Savior. And you have given us all that we need. You are the wonderful counselor. Through your word, you have given us counsel. And help us to just adhere to your word. That you are the mighty God that gives us power. The everlasting Father that will never forget us or put us aside. You are our Prince of Peace. And Father, it, it is such a, a great relief to know that we have that peace. Where I have personally experienced that peace. Where your loved ones that I've seen have experienced that peace. Remove the fear and the anxiety. Remove the pressures of this world and help us to understand that peace. Help us to come to a completeness, a wholeness, a fullness of who you are. So Lord, as we celebrate this time of the year, 
I pray that that becomes the forefront of all that we do. That is forever impressed upon our hearts. And we go from this day forward in that direction. So thank you, Lord, once again for this time. As you dismiss us from this place, but never from your presence. I pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen and Amen. Just a couple of announcements. As you remember, we talked about this here a while back, of uh, actually last Sunday. On December 20th, Saturday from 4 to 7, I think it is, we have a... Uh, huh? That's what I said. Sunday the, 20, the 20th. <laughs> Thank you, brother. On your toes. Just keep your toes. It's Sunday in the afternoon at 4 p.m. Uh, we'll have a, a, a Christmas gathering for the community. We're going to keep announcing it. We have a train that we've rented that we're going to rent, and uh, they'll be able to give the kids a ride around the, the area, the parking lot and stuff, you know, that we've just completed. Um, and, of course, we'll give you some more directions on that. Uh, they sanitize between the rides, and, and it's up to us to monitor our kids and family members. But um, please, um, we, we need help manning some stations. Not too sure exactly how we're going to do all the foods and the drinks or anything like that, but, you know, we have a good idea of, of what we do, especially like on Sundays and separate and for those that want to be uh, uh, here, yet safe as well. And let's see here. Next Sunday uh, is the first Sunday of the month, and uh, we'll actually be starting our celebration of Christmas. We'll have the Lord's Supper um, at that time. Amen? All right.